This Tridio production is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and made possible by you, our listener. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit tridio.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 39. For over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Shush. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series Doctor Who. Today we're going way back in time, 50 years plus, uh, 54 years at this point to discuss the very first Doctor Who adventure titled An Unearthly Child. Uh, joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken from San Diego. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika from Malta, Montana. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Great. So it's the, uh, this is it. This is the very first Doctor Who adventure, um, uh, Lost in the Mists of Time. I mean, this is uh, November 30th, 1963. Um, it will actually November 23rd, 23rd, yeah. oh, oh, which is right. a very familiar day for us here in the United States. Right. I was going to bring that up. Actually, I have something, I think Wikipedia had November 30th, which is funny. Uh, so yeah, November 23rd, which is, uh, the day after, right? The Kennedy assassination. The Kennedy assassination was November 22nd. And so yep. this was right on the heels of that, which totally stepped on the ratings. And that may explain the reference you saw to November 30th, because uh, the producer, <clears throat> uh, uh, Verity Lambert, uh, insisted on re-airing the next week to give it a fair launch. Mm. Interesting. And and the way that the show was... Uh, for, for, um, set up for that first you know uh 30 years of its of its existence pretty much was that it was in serial form so you had one story that took place in 25 minute segments um over a series of weeks right that's so um yeah so and initially it was it was most weeks of the year i mean they would do like 40 weeks in a row yeah they you're right. They didn't take as much time off as well. Now we we go a year and a half without any Doctor Who at times. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's so this serial, the first one, uh, is is in four parts. Um, each part has its own name, but it's generally just called an unearthly child as a overall name for the whole thing. Um, I don't want to get too much necessarily into the history of how. Doctor Who came to be and the behind it. I think actually that would be a nice episode we could do in the future in where the future. We, we could talk or about the past or right. The future past. Um, <laughs> we could wibbly wobbly all the way there and, and talk about, you know, the, so you, the history of Doctor Who, how it got to be on TV, because you recommended a great book to me, Jimmy, which I, I haven't had a chance to do more than just uh, look at uh, on oh, the yeah. history of Doctor Who. We'll, uh, so maybe we'll do we'll, We'll put that as a future episode or several episodes where we can talk about that. And so as not to leave people hanging, the book I recommended is uh, called Space Helmet for a Cow. And there's two volumes of that. The first one deals with the classic series and the second deals with the modern series. But it's it's Doctor Who history told hilariously. Yes, I will. Um, nice. I'll put uh, links in the show notes for that uh, so that you can pick that up if you'd like. But uh, so what we've got here is um, a. a TV show in which uh, we have uh, the Doctor, um, played by William Hartnell, 
we have his his granddaughter Susan, uh, who, her name her known as Susan Foreman. Um, we have two uh, companions that they will eventually be uh, Barbara Wright and Ian Chesterton. Um, and it's you know it was created and produced by the BBC. It was written by uh, Anthony Coburn. Um, so we have this. Um, he was Australian, I gather. Uh, so I'm just trying to like throw some of this a little bit of background in there, so we kind of get the sense of that uh, you know this it was this brand new thing being exposed on TV. I mean, 1963. This is just before Star Trek was on TV. You know, science fiction uh, in a visual format, especially on TV, was was so new, um, and so we kind of are dropped. Verity into Lambert this. was also the BBC's first uh, female showrunner, right? Yeah, I mean that's this is sort of a groundbreaking show in in several ways. So I mean, let's kind of just set the stage of you know what what we're watching here. And by the way, uh, folks, I uh, there are links. I I will put some links into uh, the show notes. Um, there is a, a British based website called Daily Motion that has um, the these episodes, the, these episodes, a lot of Doctor Who, old Doctor Who episodes online. Um, I don't know the legal ramifications in Britain. I understand that the copyright ramifications are very different from American. Uh, so I leave that up to you. If you do wish to pay to view this, it is available on YouTube as a paid episode. Right. You can pay $2 yeah. to watch it. So if, okay. if you're concerned about that, there's also, yeah. I believe you it's- You can also uh, get the DVDs. Yeah. Well, there's also a site called BritBox, I believe it is. Um, where it's it's British television and you can um yeah it's it's the BBC has set up this Brit box where you can watch all these British television shows including classic Doctor Who and this is kind of like a kind of like a Netflix type you pay you know so much per month and get streaming service my understanding though is BritBox doesn't have everything that's uh I, when I went to watch the 10th planet it wasn't available right. there which is kind of interesting well, again, so it's kind of hit or miss you know there's a lot of these all, all these sites, there's going to be some that are going to be there, some that won't be there, some that are complete, some that aren't. You know. Yes. So you could pay to watch this uh, if 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 you um, if if you feel that's the right thing to do. Uh, so, uh, and I encourage you to do that because um, I encourage that artists get paid for their work. That said, um, so here we go. The, the unear an unearthly child. It starts um, with these two school teachers. Um, oh, oh, before yep. that, even though we we have it starts with these unearthly credits. Oh, I right. Mean, imagine you're you're it's 1963. You're used to all these fairly staid BBC programs, and you know they do lots of costume dramas and high literature and stuff like that at adaptations. And then you tune in at tea time on a Saturday one day, waiting for jukebox jury to come on for the young people, and uh, and all of a sudden there's this haunting unearthly music and these weird blobby shapes on your screen and they're just swirling around and you have no context it's all black and white and then you know the the title comes up doctor who it's a mysterious title and then we've got an unearthly child the episode title is just setting you up for eeriness that's very dissimilar yep. to things you've seen before then we see like a darkened um, junkyard, foreman's junkyard, and we see this police call box in it, and a policeman kind of walks by, and you're thinking, okay, maybe he's connected to the call box, but we get nothing more on that, and then suddenly we're in a young, we're in a, we're in a school, we're in a high school. Yeah, 
about the, uh, the the opening theme music, I actually saw uh, a video the other day that kind of t- reviewed the music of uh, Doctor Who over the years. Um, and it, one of the things it said pointed out was that this might have been the very first electronic music that most viewers, British viewers, had ever heard. Like this unearthly music. Um, yeah, and and realize too is it would have been patched together manually because old synthesizers that they would have used for that didn't have keyboards. They would have had to set the synthesizer, play the note, record it, set it again, repeat, 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 and then cut the tape together to make, literally cut the tape together to make the music they wanted. Mm-hmm. On old four-track mixers. Right. Uh, it, it just, it's amazing the, the, you know, the, how groundbreaking this was. I mean, this would have creeped people out. Uh, just put it that way. People would have been seriously creeped out you know, seeing this for the first time. Uh, but yet the, the music is iconic. And it's it's lasted. It's lasted for fifty years. I mean, it's in various forms, but its its essential essence is still there. So, uh, and instant instantly recognizable. What's comical is there uh, Ron Ranger who wrote this. Um, as I understand it, wrote a lot more things like for spy television shows, things like that. So very upbeat, very you know, energetic. And in the seventies, he put out an album of his music. You know, he's very famous for writing lots of uh, uh, TV scores and so on. And he did a version of this that supposedly was how he originally intended it. And it sounded more like something you'd hear like in a James Bond movie. Very exciting and energetic and high, you know, high tempo. Very much not like this. I'm guessing it was probably in a in a major key as opposed to this in a minor key. Yes. Yes, it was, you know, and you can go on YouTube and you can look up Ron Granger, Doctor Who, and someone has put it on YouTube and it's, it really, really, really sounds different. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. It's like I've, I once heard, uh, heard the Imperial March uh, from Star Wars redone in a major key. It's very, oh. very interesting. <laughs> yes, um, it is. So uh, the school, uh, we, we're at the Coal Hill School, which is a name I recognize from the new Who. Uh, yeah, we, they brought it back. We talked about this uh, when we first saw the episodes. Uh, this is the school that Clara Oswald ends up teaching at. And in fact, on the sign, when Clara Oswald is there, the, the headmaster of the school is Ian Chesterton. Ian Chesterton. Who is who is the first human character we meet other than the policeman? That's right, and he's a a, a biology teacher, chemistry teacher. Uh, oh, he's science. a science teacher. I don't science know that they make it more sort. specific than that. Yeah, generic sciences. Let's just say he's a sciences teacher, uh, and he's having a conversation with this other teacher, uh, Barbara Wright, about history a, teacher. a history teacher about uh, one of their students, a precocious. 15-year-old student, Susan Foreman, who seems to uh, be brilliant on certain subjects like math and history, but also has curious gaps in her knowledge that concern them. So she's the eponymous unearthly child. She's just strange. Right. Yeah. And... um, and they talk about how they've uh, Barbara has tried to uh, go to her home to talk to her grandfather, uh, the, who's her guardian. Um, but when she got there, she realized it was a false address because it says that you know the address is in a junkyard. Um, so they resolve to follow her home one day. And this is a very there's a very long scene, by the way. Again, it's that that different pacing of the day. We have these long scenes of just chatting back and forth that don't go mm-hmm. very don't go very far. Yeah, and we have like a bunch of flashbacks illustrating, and this is how we actually meet Susan is in the flashbacks, right? where it's illustrating the memories of Ian and Barbara of things where she's either been precociously advanced 
or surprisingly ignorant. Right. And like the one thing she uh, Barbara mentions that um, she doesn't know how many shillings are in a pound because she said she thought that that they were on a decimal system. And so they show us this flashback of Susan um, talking to, to Barbara and Barbara is saying now America has a decimal monetary system, but right. we don't. And, and Susan is like, oh, yeah, the decimal the decimal system hasn't started yet. Which, Which is futuristically <laughs> happened eight years later after yeah. this episode was aired. In 71 <laughs> right. was when Britain went to the decimal system. But that's an illustration for us dramatically yep. of how it's hinting at the fact Susan's a time traveler. Right. And so uh, they resolve, these two teachers, to follow her home one day, which... It's from a 21st century perspective. It's very creepy. But, <laughs> yeah. well, but the, I, on the other hand, public schools can be pretty creepy. You know, the teachers can get in. We need to get uh, protective services involved here. Exactly. Let's just follow this kid home and sick, sick the officials on them. I, that's well, that's they, they do get decide to get very hands on involved in in this uh, girl situation. So they they follow her home to the junkyard uh, at night, and um, they're confronted by Susan's grandfather, the doctor, um, who's very grumpy, who's very and very uh, dismissive of them. Doesn't want them around. Is very suspicious and hostile, um, and and cryptic. Uh, and, and they all you know end up inside the TARDIS uh, you know, through various. Co- sort of comical you know ian is just cannot accept that this you know the girl they hear her voice from inside the box and they think the doctor is keeping this girl in a box in this junkyard um uh, you know holding her uh, kidnapping her of some sort but they all end up inside the tardis and are ian also before that he touches the tardis and feels it vibrate and declares it's alive and that's the first indication that we have that the TARDIS is like a mechanical life form. Right. It's right. right. It's and it's more than it appears to be. Um, and they end up inside the TARDIS and are accidentally transported to the Stone Age. And, and that's not accidentally because what happens is they get in there and um, and Susan starts getting nervous because they've now seen the inside of the ship and they think it's an illusion of some kind. But and but uh, the doctor starts getting really cagey and Susan starts picking up on it and telling him to let them go. And he says, I can't because they're going to tell people if I let them go and um, and they'll either tell the police or at least their friends. And then we're going to become an object of, of, um, of, uh, of attention. And if we let them go, then we're going to have to abandon London. We're going to have to leave. And Susan has already said these last five months in London have been the happiest of my life. And she, she wants to stay there. The doctor does not like 20th century, uh, the 20th century. He says he doesn't, but she loves it and she wants to stay. And she even tells the doctor, well, then I'll stay with them and you can go. And at that point he says, well, then I'll let them go. But instead he goes over to the TARDIS console and starts flipping controls that aren't the door controls. And Susan sees it and screams and says, stop. And the doctor takes them all back to the Stone Age. So he basically kidnaps Ian and Barbara in order to keep Susan with him. Right. Okay. That's, that's a bit, yeah, that's, that's a better word. And and Ian and Barbara end up um, knocked out, right? Uh, Unconscious. Yeah. We, it's kind of a violent first TARDIS journey. So, um, 
then so that's this essentially the first episode and then the next three episodes you could kind of sum it up as they, they become involved in a brutal power struggle within a stone age tribe um yeah, this... we don't really even need to talk about that other than to say it's bad <laughs> yeah. I, I thought we were just actually literally i thought we were just going to talk about the first episode in an earthly child and not talk about the boring three yeah. caveman episodes okay <laughs> well, well there are some interesting character elements that develop from those where uh yeah. the 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 doctor and Ian's relationship kind of um, uh, is tense throughout that. Mm-hmm. Um, Ian is a natural, naturally almost tries to take command, but by the end sort of uh, recognizes the doctor as the, the leader. Um, so, well, okay, we can, we can kind of concentrate on in an unearthly child if uh, in, in that sense, then. Yeah. I think it's it, interesting it, for, for people who are, who are interested in, in watching this stuff. I mean, if you're a completist like I am, you can watch all of them, but if you just want to see how Dr. Who began, you can just watch the very first episode whose individual episode title is an unearthly child right. and basically skip the caveman stuff. It's, it's interesting to look back though, you know, 54 years later where you see so many tropes that have persisted in Doctor Who to this day, mm-hmm. you know, like previous, ep- you know, our, you know, last episode of, of Secrets Doctor Who, we talked about Rose and what do you see? Rose went around the TARDIS and ran inside and ran out and it's bigger on the inside, than the outside. What do you see in the earthly child? Ian walks around the TARDIS, goes inside. It's bigger on the inside than the outside. I walked all around it, you know, similar mm-hmm. tropes like that. Of course, the sound effects, you know, the TARDIS sound effects are very similar. Um, you know, there's so many of these different themes that have persisted in Doctor Who for all these years. In, including little things we mentioned in our previous podcast episode, which was about Rose, the relaunch episode of Doctor Who. Um, you had there you had Rose as kind of our camera character to learn about the doctor and she becomes his companion. Here we have Susan as our entry point character who leads us to learn about the doctor and she already is one of his companions. Um, but there's an interesting callback uh, in Rose where the doctor is in Rose's apartment and flips through a book and reads it instantly and says, Ooh, sad ending. And, um, <clears throat> and that echoes something that happens in this episode where uh, Susan's teacher, Barbara, loans her a book about the French Revolution. And Susan says, oh, thank you. I'll bring it back tomorrow. And she says, oh, you can keep it till you've read it. And she says, no, I'll have read it. And so you have the same kind of instant, you know, book reading absorption thing. She's going to somehow read it all overnight. She just didn't want to do it in front of her. And, uh, and, and so it's kind of a crypto callback Mm -hmm. in the new who, where they don't make a big deal out of it. But if you know the background, you see the echo and, uh, it, 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 so it's a nice little touch like that. One thing incidentally that's interesting about Susan is in these early episodes, <clears throat> she is presented in a straightforward manner as the daughter's as the doctor's granddaughter. And we never hear about who her parents are. She's called Susan Foreman just because they're in the Foreman junkyard. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but we don't know her real last name or she says she was born in another time, but doesn't say past or future. In an unaired version of the pilot, she says, I was born in the 49th century. But right. the show producers thought that that was too specific, so they changed it in the, in the second pilot to just "I was born in another time in another world," and she's treated as if she's just 
straightforwardly the doctor's granddaughter and the actress um, and William Hartnell both agreed on that and kind of had some backstory they'd invented to explain why they were exiled from his homeworld, which was unnamed at the time. Um, but in later seasons of Doctor Who, uh, by the time we got to about the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison, the then showrunner had decided that the Doctor was basically asexual. I mean, he was a man, but he would never have sexual relations. And so there was a later theory that Susan was not his literal granddaughter, but was just somebody he had met or had some other kind of relationship to him. But then in the new who they brought it back to where, no, he's been a father and a grandfather before, and she is his literal granddaughter. So there's an interesting kind of backstory character arc for Susan that you see if you, if you read about or the different periods in Doctor Who history. It's very interesting to see the personality as well. Susan feels like to me, she's like, she feels like the later doctor. She's the one who's curious and affectionate towards Earth. And, mm -hmm. and, and the doctor is, it seems like he's just, he's living there because she, like, as you said, because she wants to be there. Um, but the, all the curiosity and interest in, in other things is in Susan herself. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Also, um, the, um, and this is something they brought back in a Peter Capaldi episode, where they the one where they go inside of a Dalek. And Peter Capaldi is initially talking to the Dalek about how when I started out, I wasn't adventurous. I wasn't a, a big moral crusader like I am now. I just wanted to get away. And you very much see that in William Hartnell. He's mm -hmm. an exile. He talks about being an exile. He's not a moral crusader in this at all. In fact, right. as we mentioned in the last podcast, he comes across as a criminal. I mean, right. he kidnaps these people. Well, um, it, you know, I kind of go got ahead. the feeling, you know, they talk, he talked about how he went out to get a filament for the TARDIS, you know, so get a component that he needed for the TARDIS. It's almost like he landed there because he knew that this was a time where he could find components that he could use to fix the TARDIS, mm -hmm. you know, but he's only there because he knows that this is a point where he could get it. Whereas Susan is very into the culture. She's like, we, we're, she's at one point listening to a transistor radio, you know, a handheld one, which was a big deal at the time. And she's, and they even tell us, and she's listening to this kind of rock music on it. And they, they tell us it's a song by John Smith and the common men. And it sounds very, you know, peppy sixties, generic teen rock kind of song. What's really fascinating to me for, uh, and that listeners may want to explore is for the 50th anniversary big finish did an audio play um called fanfare for the common men which is based on the group that susan is listening to oh, sure. <laughs> and it is an awesome uh little play where the doctor the fifth doctor peter davison <clears throat> and his companion nissa try to go to a beatles concert only to find that the beatles have been replaced in history by the common men <laughs> and, and and the doctor is reminiscing about how susan used to listen to their music and he always hated it but then he said but then i was so much older then <laughs> You know, speaking of fixing the TARDIS, um, we, we're also told at this point, uh, we find out that it, in this episode, the TARDIS, is the, its camouflage circuits are not broken. They're functioning. It's supposed to mm -hmm. look, it, it's the right time and place for this to look like a police box. But when it travels um, between this and the Cave of the Skulls episode, it 
the circuits are, are damaged, and Susan notes that, oh, why does it still look like a police box? Yep. Yeah, um, she says that's never happened before. Right. Exactly. So, it was right then in 1963 when they broke. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been a, uh, she, she says it's been a column and a sedan chair in the past. I, th- I think that a column was the word she said it was the recording was a little iffy, but uh yeah, I think that's right. And for people who may not know, a sedan chair is one of those things uh, that it's it's a chair that has poles attached to it so servants can pick up the poles and carry the chair around. And they were used like in ancient Rome and places like that for wealthy people to uh, to travel so they wouldn't have to walk places. They'd get their servants to carry them in a sedan chair. And because they didn't want people intruding on their privacy while they were in the sedan chair, the sedan chair would be enclosed. And so you could see how that would work as a TARDIS. You'd like climb inside the sedan chair and shut the door and you'd be inside the TARDIS. Yeah, speaking of the door of the TARDIS, that was something else I noticed. Very is very different in this first TARDIS than the more recent ones. Is from the outside, the doors look like as we expect the police box. But when you're standing inside, the even the outside of the doors look like they have the roundels and the. Mm-hmm. It looks very spaceshipy, uh, and in fact, the doorway. Uh, looked wider than the actual <laughs> the, the blue box uh, that they, and it's they... got a, a kind of zigzag pattern to the doors. So instead of having a straight line down the middle where they open, right. they kind of mesh with each other. Whereas the more modern uh, TARDIS of today, uh, the door looks like the door, like on the inside, it looks the same as it does right. on the outside. It's the inside of that door. And the yeah, the difference of the doors uh, continued throughout the classic Who. They all had that similar appearance where they were the white uh, spaceship, thick spaceship type doors. But then the outside, of course, was the TARDIS door. Yeah, but they don't go shook shook like space doors should. Nope. <laughs> They're very slow, in fact. <laughs> they uh, go, mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I believe in later episodes, because, you know, people noticed this. And in, in later years, there are references to the TARDIS having inner doors and outer doors mm-hmm. to explain that difference. There's also, also like an antechamber. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Also, the uh, um, there looking around the TARDIS for people who may have come in, like in Tom Baker or Peter Davison's era, the TARDIS it, it's still got the white roundel design, but it's a little different. There are more doodads in the TARDIS original than there, than what you later see. There's like a hat rack, and there's a kind of weird clock, and there's um, there's a TV screen monitor, and there's some additional artifacts that uh, weren't part of later seasons. But And in, in some of these early William Hartnell episodes, we even get to see additional parts of the TARDIS that later disappeared from the show. Like we get to see the bedrooms, and they have a food dispenser and things like that. So um, speaking of, we, we talked a little about Ian and Barbara before. Let's talk, a, you know, bring them up again. So Ian and Barbara, are they a couple? Do we, do, we, do we get that sense? Do they become a couple later? They become one. Okay. And, and so I kind of get the feeling, at least this point, they're just uh, coworkers, friends, you know, and that's about it. Yeah. The way they're presented, and I don't know if this is just because of the difference in eras and the way people behaved differently. I get the sense that they tend that they're older than most of the doctor's later companions that from the new who, uh, that these are, these are full, fully adults. They're, they're maybe middle-aged or early middle-aged. 
what what we have here, and this was by conscious design by the showrunners, is a faux family. So you have the doctor is the grandfather, Ian and Barbara are the parents, and Susan is the young person. Right. <clears throat> and so we that's meant to uh, to to have this family show vibe that can appeal to all demographics, age wise and gender wise, and. Um, None of them are actually related except for the doctor and Susan, but they're very definitely creating a faux family vibe and and they're setting us up for what's going to happen in future episodes because since the doctor is elderly, he can't play the action man in an action series. So that role falls to Ian, who then turns out in future episodes to be a resourceful action man. Um Barbara is a history teacher, so we know they're going to go to the future and the past. So Barbara becomes an expert whenever they're in the past. Ian, being a science teacher, becomes an expert whenever they're in a scientific planet or the future. And so we have the series nicely set up to, for the later dramatic uh, encounters they're going to have in it. And Ian is the um, he's the skeptic, uh, whereas Barbara seems to be more. Uh more about um, connecting. I mean, it's sort of a classic, uh, the woman as the emotional heart and the man as the intellectual um, is skeptic and, and, and the analytical side. Yeah. Yeah. That's the word. And so it's a, it's a, a classic um, sort of right. This, the, there's a little bit of everything, as you said, that in, in, in this, this uh, little uh, group of four, um, the doctor himself, I mean, the, how do you, you know, how do you think the doctor compares here to how he eventually becomes? You know, what, how does he evolve from from where he is now? Well, that's that's one thing I was thinking about. Is there's a very interesting parallel between William Hartnell's doctor and Peter Capaldi's doctor, because they both start out very gruff and harsh, and they never totally lose that, but they mellow throughout the series. Because if yeah. you watch some of the later William Hartnell episodes, he's much more jovial. Mm-hmm. than he is in this one. Um, and it's, you know, again, it's, you see that with Peter Capaldi, he started out very harsh, you know, the attack eyebrows he talked about to, you know, much, much more relaxed and again, kind of almost jovial. Um, and I, I think it, it's, that was kind of part of the conscious, you know, kind of loosen the character up. Um, you know, you get more and, familiar with him and he becomes more familiar with with the, the other characters and he loosens up. In, in this case, I, I, I I think they were feeling their way uh, in terms of William Hartnell's character. Um, In the unaired pilot, he is even more gruff than he is here. I mean, he's actually tender towards Susan in this episode in the aired pilot. But in the unaired pilot, William Hartnell is very angry with her. And so there was already and William Hartnell as an actor was known for playing like Marine or drill sergeants and things like that. and uh, and so he was that was kind of his expected mode was to be extremely gruff. And they wanted him to be gruff, but also be relatable. And it took a while for them to find that balance with him. Right. Uh, it was complicated over the course of his tenure by the fact he also had health problems. So he was really struggling. You know, when they're making 40 or 50 episodes a year, that's a brutal schedule. Right. And um, and William Hartnell was struggling uh, with 
arteriosclerosis and had problems keeping his energy up. And so he was he was actually quite irritable uh, just because of the health issues he was dealing with. And so mm-hmm. that they did warm him up, um, but it took him a while. I don't think it was conscious, you know, let's start him gruff and then make him warm. Right. They were just trying to feel their way and realized it needed to evolve in that direction. That's about as much as I think we can say about unearth- an unearthly child. It's a 25-minute episode um, that really is about introducing these characters to us. There's not a whole lot of of action, per se. Well, one one thing uh, kind of you know, flashing forward, there was rumors during the Capaldi and Clara era that they were going to bring back Ian. You know, because, of course, we yeah. mentioned he was, he was shown in the Coal Hill School board Uh and the actors. William still alive. Russell is still alive. He's yeah. one of him and Carol Ann Ford are the only two of the actors we see in this episode who are still alive. Yeah, well, uh, Carol Ann Ford meaning- playing Susan. Yeah, yes. yeah. Bar- the actress who played Barbara unfortunately has passed on. Although she later came back in another Doctor Who serial in Tom Baker's day, but not playing Barbara. Um, which was a tragedy to me. She was playing like this alien warlord queen lady. Um, but uh, but but Barbara was such a great character. And the breakout character to me was Ian. Um, Ian in later serials becomes a really, really likable and resourceful character. Mm-hmm. Um I, I'm very impressed with Ian, and I would love to see them uh, bring him back in, uh, in, in, you know, before um, the actor whose name I'm blanking, William Russell, uh, before he passes away. I would love to see Ian come back. That would be interesting, and it might be it, it might be uh, kind of uh, interesting to see him uh, with a doctor who's now a young woman. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, that would be a change. <laughs> yes, it would. That would be a. I think we're going to end up seeing some of those uh, moments in the in the tenure of the thirteenth Doctor. Uh, so that's, but that's that's a, that's our old. That's a discussion we've had before. <laughs> so, um, anything else we want to say about this in uh, Unearthly Child, which is very difficult for me to say. I'm I'm not a, a broadcast professional. Um, <laughs> But uh, other than that, like it, it, like you said, Jimmy, you know, the rest of the the serial are is fairly forgettable. I mean, it is it's these really bad cavemen. We get we get to see the doctor smoking a pipe, and it's kind of a weird alien pipe. But, <laughs> yes. but, uh, yeah. but it's sort well, of a Gandalf it's pipe. It's really boring. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. This, yeah, it's a very strange where the cavemen want fire, and um, we see have, there's a couple of interesting character moments between Ian and the doctor and um barbara um and we see the the characters developing a little more but um but you're right it's not it's not great um doctor who if it had continued in that vein it probably would have died an early death uh because the caveman episodes are are pretty excruciating but if you're a completist you'll still want to see them where the series really picks up and the thing that saved it and launched it to really broad success in british culture is the serial after that which is the introduction of the daleks and that's what just catapulted the series into prominence in british culture right so that's it from for us uh, from us on the unearthly child what did you think of the very first doctor who adventure uh, let us know visiting uh, by visiting tridio.com, T-R-I-D-E-O.com, or going to the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or uh, you can send us an email to Doctor Who at sqpn.com. 
You can find links to all our personal social media and our websites on the show notes on Tridio.com. And we'll be back next week when we'll be discussing The Tenth Planet, which is the, the bookend to this episode. It's the last episode for William Hartnell's Doctor and the first regeneration uh, so until then, uh, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining us in sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Always enjoy it. And Jimmy, thank you as well. My pleasure, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening. When will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those.